Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hey, it's Crystal Knight, and welcome back to the show brought to you by Newsweek. Cash bail has to be one of the most controversial things, maybe not the most, but one of the most controversial things, a part of the American judicial system. Many times when people are accused of crime, they go before a judge and some form of bail is set. Well, now one state, the state of Illinois, has officially eliminated cash bail. It's controversial, but they did it. This week, I am speaking with Sharon Mitchell. He is the chief public defender for Cook County, which encompasses Chicago and its surrounding suburbs. Sharon, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining to talk about this historic legislation that is just passing your state. Crystal, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. I think it's it's great that we just start with like, what is cash bill for people who don't know and why is it so significant that Illinois has eliminated it? And what yeah, does that mean question. for the public at large? That's a great question. I think a lot of people think they understand what this is, but it's actually, um, you know, some, sometimes folks get it wrong. So um, when a person is arrested, uh, they typically go before a judge very quickly, um, especially for like felony cases. And um, when they go before a judge, a judge has to make a decision about what happens to that person uh, as they're waiting for trial. So in Illinois and Cook County and actually many of the jurisdictions around the country, a judge has basically three big options. Uh, A judge could choose one to hold that person. So you're gonna be held until we decide what's happening with your case. That's supposed to be the exception to the rule actually. The Supreme Court talks about how that's an exception because people are innocent until proven guilty, but that is option number one, hold the person. Option number two is release the person. Mm-hmm. Now, the case isn't over, right? The, the case isn't dismissed or anything like that, but the person will essentially, um, you, know, you know, the case will be resolved, you know, as they are home, right? Right. And then the third option is just kind of like, kind of combination of both. And that's what we're talking about with cash bail. That's when a judge says, hey, you're eligible to be released, but to be released, you've got to pay X amount of money to the government. And the case still goes on. You either can be found guilty. You either can be found not guilty. The case can get dismissed. All those options are on the table. But to be released from jail, you've got to pay a bunch of money. So what Illinois did was say, what they said is like the idea that we're using money to make determinations about whether somebody should be in or out mm-hmm. is totally broken. And that money should play no role in this decision. Right. And we're going to have judges essentially decide either you're in or you're out. 
and the judges will look at the allegation, they'll look at the person's background, they'll look at arguments back and forth between the prosecutor and the defense attorney, but in the end, money will have no factor in whether somebody's going to be in or out. So we go from three big options to two big options. That is what the end of money bond means in Illinois. And there are a lot of details, but that is essentially it. And so if if I'm listening and I say, well, I got robbed and the, they found the person and now he's out because there's no you know cash bail to hold him. How is this? How is this fair? Like, why shouldn't he be able to sit in jail? Maybe I also know that this person doesn't have money to make bail if, if bail existed. How is this making me feel any safer, particularly when I hear on the news that, you know, everyone says Chicago is so dangerous and it's the epicenter of crime in America. Why would a state like Illinois um, in a city that is what the third largest in the country, I think Chicago is one of the, it's the top five, probably the, thir- the number three, number three. It's number one in our hearts. Respectfully. Right. Why would, why would the state of Illinois do this? I mean, I think for people who, who, who care about reform, it's a win, but for people who are big on safety, public safety, they may feel more threatened and scared. So how do you ease those fears about people? I think that's a great question. And I think it's it's important to note this. When somebody goes before a judge, now the law has been in effect for two to three weeks. Mm-hmm. The judge makes a determination about whether that person should be in jail or out of jail based on the allegations mm-hmm. and the things about that person mm-hmm. and then the arguments that have been presented. Mm-hmm. In the status quo, what you had was the amount of money that that person has right. making the decision about whether somebody should be in or out. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm a defense attorney, right? Let me be very clear. I believe in the presumption of innocence. And I believe even though somebody is accused of something serious, they should have the ability to have their day in court. And actually, our region has a long, long history of getting it wrong, whether you're talking about wrongful convictions or overpenalizing people. Like, that history exists. But the actual decision about whether somebody should be held in jail now is around the things around that person in that case, and not just a guess about whether a person has access to money or not. Right. You know, before two, three weeks ago, the decision about whether that person is going to be in revolved around whether that person had a rich grandma. Or yeah. a rich auntie, or not even a rich, just had enough money. And typically that money did not come from the accused person. It came from that person's family. Whether that person could scrounge up enough money mm-hmm. was the deciding factor whether somebody is going to be in or it's going to be out. So I definitely understand the concerns that people have. Mm-hmm. But the reality of the situation is that a person could potentially still be held. And people are held every day without okay. a bond. And, but also, it wasn't like a a better way to make decisions Mm -hmm. when we relied on money. Mm -hmm. And although Illinois is the first state to eradicate the use or the option of money bond completely, we know cities, you know, the federal system, Mm -hmm. the most juvenile systems, Washington, D.C., New Jersey, have essentially eradicated money bond. And what we found is that using money doesn't make 
better decisions. It doesn't keep us safer. Mm -hmm. Um, There are a lot of other things to do. So. Yeah. And it it also doesn't stop crime just because someone is in, if they get out, regardless of if it's on bail or they're just released, their propensity to go back and commit a crime um, did not lessen because of, of, or, or increase because of the bail bond. Um, What about people who are advocates, right? So we talk about people who say, Maybe I don't like this because of the presumption of fear, the presumption of a repeat offender. But what about folks who say, I have been fighting to reform the judicial system as an advocate. Jails are overcrowded. People are being held and losing their jobs, losing their homes, losing their livelihood because they cannot make bail. People are yeah. you know, being held with under this presumption of, of, of guilt without having due process and while they're being held, all of these things are unraveling at their familial level. So what about advocates who say, this is great. This is the model that every state should be adopting moving forward. Can you just speak to that? Like how other states and and really how did Illinois get to this point where you've eliminated it? Yeah. A bunch of great questions there. So I think the first thing to note is that there have been kind of two critiques of the previous bail system. Okay. You know, one critique was that people who shouldn't be let out had access to money and bought their way out. Mm. And that was a critique. There was also a critique, and I think there were more people, like more physical people in this camp. You're a person who's accused of offense, and the only reason why you're still in jail is because you're poor. Right. So whether that accusation is an accusation about a low level offense or any type of offense, you remain in jail just because you're poor. Mm-hmm. And we know the vast majority of people who are in jail are actually poor, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So um, the critique has been essentially you have all these poor people in jail, right? Because they're poor, not because a judge said that they are too dangerous right. to be uh, released, right? Because a jail, a judge could have held them, right? A judge could have said, hey, you're held in jail. But that's not what the judge did. The judge basically said, you've got to pay $100, $500,000, $1,000, so on and so forth. We know that when a person is stuck in jail, a couple of things happen. First, they're far more likely to plead guilty, and they're far mm. more likely to serve a longer sentence than a person accused of the exact same thing with the exact same background. We know that people have more pressure to plead guilty when they're in jail. We know they have less access to their attorneys. They have no access to participate in their case. And basically what you had is just people kind of pleading guilty because they're in jail and because they're poor, not because there's evidence that basically determined that they should plead guilty or things like that. So this idea of the presumption of innocence was really broken. Got it. The second thing is actually a safety argument, which is really kind of counterintuitive to people. Mm-hmm. But the studies and lots of studies bear that out. Most people are actually accused of less serious offenses. There are many more people in Cook County, and I suspect most of the country that are actually charged with misdemeanors than felonies, right? Mm-hmm. Or drug offenses or possession offenses. And what we know is when a person is stuck in jail for a short period of time, on a minor offense, you actually make it more likely that they return to the criminal legal system Mm. than if you release them. 
Now the question is, why is that? That's yeah, sense. that is why a is that doesn't make jail? sense. Does it make sense? Right. Well, here's the reason why. When you put somebody in jail, they are far more likely to lose their job. Mm-hmm. They are far more likely to lose their home. Mm-hmm. Any benefits they got either from the government or anywhere else are typically cut off. Okay. If they had connections with their family, whether either they took care of family or things of that nature, that gets cut off. Mm. And all of those things, those socioeconomic factors are actually the things that keep people out of trouble. Right. So when you put somebody in jail and let's say they can't pay rent now, they are far more likely to be accused of things that we don't like because we put them in a situation that was more desperate. Mm, okay. so if you actually look at the numbers, putting somebody in jail actually increases the likelihood that they return to the criminal legal system. It actually makes us less safe. Wow. So, so that that's one of the reasons why uh, these laws uh, ending cash bond, right, in New Jersey, right, they were able to end cash bond and they didn't see some type of increase, some type of serious increase in crime. Because one, there's still an option to hold people that the judge uh, determines needs to be held. Right. But two, right, actually over-incarcerating people actually makes communities less safe. Right. Now, with this, there was kind of this prediction that Illinois, you may have seen it, that Illinois was passing the purge law, right? Mm-hmm. That they were going to pass this law and, you know, blood with the streets were going to run red with blood and that there would be, you know, all types of things that we breaking out and Chicago would just become a free-for-all. And Illinois would become a free-for-all. That didn't happen. That's good. Illinois ended cash bond. And what happened? The decisions about what happened, you know, the decisions about, you know, what's going to happen to a person before trial, uh-huh. the hearings got longer. They got more uh, complex. Mm. Judges were given more evidence to make better decisions about what should happen. Wow. And crime didn't spike. You know, there wasn't like, you know, you know, you know, there wasn't like chaos. Right. We just had a better system that made better decisions. Now, this is not to say that judges have crystal balls. Right. There will be a person who will be accused of an offense. They'll be released and they'll be reaccused of another offense. That will happen. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt about it. Right. And we should always try to stop that. But what we know is that happened in status quo. That's true. That's, That's true. We had cash bond. Mm-hmm. And what we know is that we have a better opportunity to make better decisions when we get rid of cash bond, we get rid of money, and we start making decisions on the substance of the case as opposed to guessing how much money a person has in their pocketbook. Wow. That was, Sharon, that's such a great just explanation about how this one law is able to really Kind of, you know, in a sense, produce fairer trials, produce, like you said, deeper evidence. Uh, the, the cases may take a little bit longer, but at least judges are not making quick decisions about if a person should be in or out. So how was the law set? Is it is it set at the county level? Cook County is one of 102 counties in the state of Illinois. But I don't know. And many of our listeners may not know. How are laws at the judicial level even set so that it even implemented across it, it, it has been implemented across the entire state? Yeah. So, you know, laws in Illinois are 
the big laws are kind of set at the state level, right? Okay. So there has really been a national movement, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's been a national attack on on cash bond. It is just simply a broken model. Okay. And you've seen folks in Illinois. You've seen folks all across the country attack it. This is something that's kind of uniquely American. Mm-hmm. Like other countries don't do cash bond. Oh wow! Um, it just doesn't something that makes a lot of sense, right? It's just something right. that we, we do here and a couple other countries to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's been a national movement, and you've seen kind of various degrees of changes. I think New Jersey before Illinois probably went the farthest where they essentially into cash bond. It's still technically possible, but few people ever get cash bonds in New Jersey. And that's been that case since 2017. Okay. Here in Illinois, what we saw was a movement um, that, you know, the most organized movement started in Chicago, right? Where people saying, you have all these poor people in jail um, that are, that are kind of just stuck in jail because they're poor. Mm -hmm. And you had a kind of another group of people saying, listen, there are people getting out of jail that are bonding out that are paying money and maybe they shouldn't be in jail, right? So you had all of this stuff going on. Right. And you really had, I think, folks from outside of the criminal legal system basically decide this makes no sense. Okay. You had folks inside the system, this was just their world. Like, this is just what we did. Yeah. But you had organizers and clergy and legal experts outside really start to organize and say this wasn't enough. Okay. This is enough is enough. Mm-hmm. So maybe 20, about almost 10 years ago, uh, maybe seven or eight years ago, you saw uh, a coalition come together, the coalition in Money Bond, um, which were people kind of coming together and they'd done work before kind of separately and there had been work done separately with the government, but like the coalition kind of came together and that coalition started in Cook County. Cook County is like Chicago and its suburbs. And they started to do work, and you started to see kind of little change, little by little by little, you know, changes here at the county level. And then that co- that coalition really started to expand. Okay. Because one of the things that happened in Illinois was people were saying, well, that might just be a Chicago problem, right? Right. Chicago, you got these big jails, and you got these issues, and, you know, the rest of the state, that's not our problem, right? Mm-hmm. So the coalition, people in Chicago actually started talking to people across the state. Okay. And what what we learned was that actually the issue, this wasn't just a Chicago issue. This was a statewide issue. Mm-hmm. This was a national issue. Mm-hmm. So you saw a coalition build start kind of start in Chicago and go nationwide go statewide. Okay. You had people from all over the state saying, Hey, this is a real problem. We have people stuck in jail not because the judge is saying they're too risky to be released. We have people stuck in jail because they're poor. And another thing is this really strong economic argument was the people that do bond out, right? It is poor families. Yeah, it is really black women. Mm-hmm. It is and black and brown women. It is mothers. It is grandmothers. It is churches. It mm. is sisters. It is girlfriends. It is wives. They're pulling all their money together, right? People right. that can barely afford it and paying this money, and in 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 suffering huge economic loss, right? Yeah. So you had folks coming together across the state with that argument, and they just pushed for change. They pushed for change and pushed for change. And then in 2021, you eventually saw this law pass in 2020. You saw the law signed into law in 2021. And because it was such a big change, right, that affected right. all the courtrooms across the state, the, it was built in to basically give a two-year runway. So it basically said, on January 1st, 2023, we're going to end cash bond. We have two years to get it figured out. 
at the eve right before on january 1st 2023 right um there was actually a lawsuit Oh, delayed the implementation, right? Okay. So then that lawsuit went from basically it was like the day before the lawsuit was filed. Wow. Extended it from January to essentially September, Mm -hmm. and then the you know the decision happened in the middle of the year in the summer, and then on September the 18th we saw the law go live. So we've been with the law for about two weeks or over two weeks. So that is essentially the story about how cash bond was ended in the state. Sharon, something that you just said really strikes me. Someone obviously filed a lawsuit the day before New Year's Eve, <laughs> before mm-hmm. this law was to take effect in 2023. What was their argument? What was their argument for wanting to keep, was it bail bondsmen? Like who who was behind yeah. trying to keep the existing law in place? And why did it take so long? I mean, we're in the last quarter of the year. I know, and I know that legal processes are not fast. The justice system, many times people say it moves slow, but obviously this sounds like it was calculated that whoever filed this lawsuit um, yeah. would do it right before the law took effect. Uh, but I'd just like to hear what that looked like. What did that look yeah. like the day before? So let me do that, the, 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 the argument justice, right? I think there's really two sets of folks in the kind of anti-camp, right? Okay. I think the first set of folks were operating purely off political means. Okay. This was a law that was passed by a popular Democratic governor who passed a number of progressive issues. And there was, this was right in the middle of election season. And there were lots of people that saw uh, the end of cash bond as a political opportunity to gain favor and to gain power. Right. Okay. We saw a very well organized, well funded campaign in mm-hmm. Illinois to paint this law as literally the purge law. It targeted black communities, black media. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and they really saw it as an opportunity to win power. It was a completely kind of political move. There were fake newspapers that were printed. Oh wow! All across the state, it was it was wild. It wow! Was absolutely wild, right? Okay. It was a completely political play. That's one group of people mm-hmm. who thought that they could just. This was a great political win. There is a second group of people that I think were really concerned about how massive of a change this was. Yeah. Listen, this is the biggest justice reform that we have seen in the state that I've ever seen in the state, right? Right. And I think many would argue it is one of the biggest reforms ever, right? It changes something that is very, um, like, primary to, like, just, like, what we know about courts. Like, money bond is something that we see in movies, right? Yeah. We see in, you know, uh, music, right? This Mm -hmm. idea that i got to pay the bondsman. Uh, We don't have bondsmen here in Illinois, but just naturally, it's just something that exists. And it was just a big change, right? Right. And I think there's a lot of people just weren't ready for that change, quite frankly. So at the beginning of 2021, mm-hmm. we saw, you know, state attorneys say about, you know, lots of them were like, this is terrible. This is, we can't do this. We can't do this. And as we started to move deeper into implementation, you actually saw a growing amount of state attorneys kind of get over that sticker shock right. and say, you know, making these decisions based upon money actually doesn't work. It's yeah. actually not a great idea. 
So you start to see people become more comfortable as we work through implementation. Now, I don't want to lie here and say that like every state's attorney is now on board, but you did see a growing number of people say, listen, well, listen, money is not a great way of making decisions, and I want to engage with these changes and make these changes. So to answer your question, you saw a group of people that were just there for the politics, and then you saw a group of people that I think were a bit afraid of change, and you know they had their arguments, but in the end, the Supreme Court of Illinois found the law constitutional, and um, you know we're here now. Got it. And and what is what does the law mean population wise? So, doing prep for this interview, I understand that you know we said this at the top. Chicago is a big city. Assume assuming it's the largest city in the state of Illinois. How do these numbers or how does this law? affect the population at large when we're talking about obviously you have 102 counties this is not a small state um, but what does this mean um, particularly I'd like for you to just talk about Cook County and it's it's you know the suburbs around Chicago how do you think this will affect just you know the the landscape of the criminal justice system across the state Well, listen, I I think time will tell what the final impact is, but I think we know a few things. I think, one, we're seeing hearings lasting longer and being fuller. Uh, I think we see better decisions being made um, because we don't have this crutch of money. Right. Um, I think we also see community members, and this is something that's really tough. Like, you won't see this in a big news story, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You just, like, there was a study done by Loyola University which is a university here in the Chicagoland area, mm-hmm. uh, that found that um, $31 million had been paid in bond amounts wow. in like a half a year. Right? Wow, $31, 31 million. million. Yeah, this is mainly money coming from people right, who don't have the money to get it, right? Because we know the criminal legal system serves poor people mainly, That's right? It's crazy. Um, kind of public defender's office, we represent the vast majority of people. You only get a public defender if you can't afford an attorney in your own. So we know the vast majority of people in the system are poor. And we know the people that are paying that money mm-hmm. are folks that just don't have it. So one of the things that you see in the last two weeks, and there have been some stories that have told the story, but it's hard to tell is, man, I don't have to pay that $1,000. I don't have to make that decision between paying the light bill and paying bond, right? Because right. I know that my person's freedom is on the line. Mm-hmm. So that is that's obviously one of the biggest impacts that you've seen as well, is that people don't have this financial obligation. And then you just see, you know, different decisions, right? Some of the decisions, the people on the, on the defense side don't love. People are being held. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you see people who are being released. You know, this is an adversarial system. But what we've seen is better decisions, more quality decisions, better reason decision, more evidence in front of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you know, we've seen, I think, a, a successful transition. And so if you are a member of the judicial community, maybe you're a public defender working in an office across the country, anywhere, it could be anywhere. How would you message this to other folks who dare to try this in their state, who dare to say, Man, if Illinois can do it, why can't we? How would you how would you message that to folks who who really do care about reforming a, a, an entire system? This is obviously just one piece, right? This is not the, the the beginning or end of of the reform movement, but this is something that's so significant that 
other states could try. And you've mentioned, obviously, New Jersey and other states who've in some sorts have eliminated it. But what about folks who are working as public defenders um, who, who care about this elimination? Well, I, I think the first thing to note is that, you know, it, it wasn't just public defenders. Quite frankly. When I started this work, I wasn't the Cook County public defender. Okay. And I think a lot of this work actually started in like communities, right? This okay. is really a grassroots level reform. It was people who just were frustrated with the system. So I think the first thing I would say to folks in other states is that I think it'd be very difficult for people just on the inside to implement this reform. Mm-hmm. That it really took community members kind of organizing and kind of working on these changes because they just thought the system didn't work for, again, a number of reasons. Some of it was kind of like the more like, you know, too many poor people are in jail. But quite frankly, there's also a population of folks that thought like people shouldn't be able to bond their way out of jail. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, just by money. Um, so I think the first thing to note is that it, it really took a community um, community powered uh, system. Okay. I think it's also tough, right? Uh, or community powered reform. I think it's also no. It said it's tough, right? This is something that did not happen overnight, right? Um, in Illinois, you know, some of the um, misinformation campaign that went out there was that oh, this is a law that was passed in the dead of night, and you know, nobody really talked about it, and it was just something that got done in a snap of a finger. That's actually not what happened. Right. There were a, a long, long, long period in terms of implementation mm-hmm. and conversations about this. This is not something that has been out there overnight. This has been a long process to get us to the point of where we're uh, at, where we're at now. You know, there, there have been efforts in the 70s and the 80s and 90s around bond reform. Mm-hmm. And we're finally at the point now where we're, we're going to, um, you know, we're realizing it. So um, I would say community powered, community involvement, and just a really a long process of kind of the biggest lesson so far as a person that's been both on the inside and the outside working on this issue. Got it. Got it. And then Sharon, I love to just ask one final question. How does this law impact your job, what you do? Um, and, and what does it mean um, as you're moving forward, representing so many people who are coming through the judicial system in your County and the surrounding suburbs? How does this new law impact you? Yeah, so in the public defender's office, you know, we certainly had to be prepared. So once we, you know, the law got signed, you know, on you know January, you know, January of twenty twenty one, we spent the next two years really getting prepared. Uh, we knew that the hearings would be, you know, more full. Uh, we needed to spend uh, more resources uh, getting prepared for those hearings, and we kind of just totally changed our structure. Of representation when it comes to being prepared for these hearings. Now, it wasn't like a full facelift because we still had to represent people at the beginning of the case, right? So that right. wasn't new. The, the reality is we just needed to get prepared for this new law. And again, it wasn't just the end of cash bond. It was really a remodel of the entire pretrial structure. Mm. Before our law, I would argue, was confusing and contradictory at points. It didn't make a lot of sense. It was like a patchwork of laws that had been passed for decades and decades and decades. And what this law did the end of cash bond through what's called the Pretrial Fairness Act, it ended cash bond, but also kind of like fixed, I think, a lot of issues uh, in the law previously. Um, so we just had to get prepared for that. We had to educate our attorneys and okay. our investigators and our support staff. Right. We had to 
you know, educate. We had to work with state's attorneys and judges on interpreting how we would execute the law, how the hearings would look, mm-hmm. how we would get prepared. Law enforcement was a part of the picture. And, and, you know, not everybody, there's no one party that's fully happy, you know, right. in terms of it, it's not anybody's one law. It was like really a combination of folks coming together and having an impact on how the law looks. And people just came together to really think about how we would implement it. Wow. Okay, well, I um I want to just say thank you for taking the time to break this down. Obviously, like you said, it's not it, it's it's cut and dry when you hear it, but there are a lot of nuances about this law. And I want to just leave you with the last words about folks who care to find out any more information about the because I'm sure this will be studied, right? This will become yeah. some t- this will be in someone's law school class moving forward um, about what happened in Illinois, um, not only with the law passing in 2021, but even the delay in the implementation this year. I just fully expect that this, you all will become some type of model um, around what you can do with reform. And so last question, as you're thinking about moving forward, are there any other reforms that, I mean, I'm sure there are many, but if you could just name one or two that you think um, we should expect to come in the coming years, not just in Illinois, but just just generally thinking about the landscape of the judicial system. So many people have concerns and gripes and they care about it on both sides of the aisle. But I'm just curious, is there anything else that might be considered like low hanging fruit that could be reformed in our judicial system that we should just be thinking about? You know, I don't know if it's low-hanging fruit, but I think there are three things that come to mind. I think the first thing, and this is kind of maybe uh, obvious because I'm a you know public defender, right? Okay. I, I think access to, to counsel mm. um, is an issue uh, that I think we're seeing a growing momentum around. Okay. Listen, we know that we have issues with wrongful convictions, mm-hmm. with false confessions, with the slow criminal legal system, where wh- whether you're an accused person or you're an alleged victim of crime, the system moves too slowly. A lot of that has to do is that folks just don't have access to attorneys. And when they do have access to attorneys, uh, th- th- those attorneys uh, may be overburdened with cases. And there just has not been historically a lot of support for public defender agencies. I think that you're going to start to see mm. people understand uh, that support for public defender agencies and access to counsel is a real issue um, all across the country. And there are both safety impacts and justice impacts right. when it comes to support of, of, of public defenders and people having access to, 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 to counsel. Uh, I think the second issue that we'll see that's kind of a bigger issue mm-hmm. is that there aren't a lot of trials uh, uh, in this country, right? Hmm. Uh, most people um, either plead guilty or cases are dismissed. And the system just really isn't set up in most places in the country mm-hmm. to have lots of trials. Okay, I think it's actually kind of a democracy issue, mm-hmm. right? Um, people not having those access to those constitutional rights. And I, there are lots of structures. It's a, probably a whole new podcast. Right. We want to go through them. But there, I think, will be a real exploration of why there aren't actual trials and what are the Hmm. things in the system that hold us back. That's something that I think three, five, seven, ten years down the line uh, people are going to be talking about. And I think the third thing that people will start to talk about on the reform side is Mm -hmm. 
long prison sentences. Got it. Uh, America is really unique in the sense that we have really long prison sentences compared to like Western Europe and other places. And there is some real questions about whether these long prison sentences actually produce better public safety results and whether states are actually wasting a ton of money incarcerating people who are, you know, elderly and are sick. Yeah. And actually, could we do a better job of helping people get back on their feet so that we have safe communities when they return back into society if we weren't so overburdened and the jails and prisons weren't so overpopulated? I think that'll be a discussion as well. The existence of very long prison sentences. Wow, those are three very specific and different points that you're absolutely right. Those could be three separate episodes and three separate conversations. The thing that sticks out to me really that you just said was about the trials. I hadn't really thought about that people plead out or they take deals and that eliminates the call for a jury and and all of these things. I like that those are things that we will start thinking about and access to quality counsel. Really solid points. I'm glad that I asked that question just so folks who are thinking about reform think about it from a multifaceted way. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting thing. You know, we hear about like the stories about criminal issues. We hear about arrests. Mm -hmm. We hear about allegations. We hear Mm -hmm. about things in bond court. Uh, But there aren't like like if if you look at a line graph, Mm -hmm. that line graph starts to tail down as you go deeper and deeper into a case. And that's just because there aren't a lot of trials and there are. It's a real impact, right? Trials, jury trials are the time in which the public, mm-hmm. not the prosecutors or the defense attorneys or the judges or the police or sheriffs, that's when the people who aren't affiliated get an opportunity to kind of see what's going on. That's the time when we open the black box and we really get to see what our justice system is doing. Mm-hmm. And when we have a justice system that is so insular mm-hmm. where you don't get those opportunities, it can create problems, right? Right. So I think we'll start to see uh, talks about that. Well, Sharon, I really appreciate you just taking the time to explain this end of, of money bail, cash bail in the state of Illinois. I would love to have you back. Um, just to maybe talk about some of these other issues. Yeah, You've literally given about. me new material. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to give you more work, but I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. Thank you so much. Uh, Absolutely. Thank you so much to your listeners for just listening and, and diving into the topic. Okay. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Crystal Night Show brought to you by Newsweek. The best way you can support us is to give your five-star review on Apple iTunes and be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcast to The Crystal Night Show. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, Use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.